In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Post-SSRI sexual dysfunction is a disorder that reduces sexual functioning despite stopping treatment with SSRI or SNRI medications. Lack of awareness and the nature of the issue most likely contributes to the underreporting of this condition. In today's podcast, we welcome Yazi Parani and Emily Gray to discuss PSSD. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. You can find me, Dr. Roger McFillin, on Twitter at Dr. McFillin. Getting into some really interesting conversations on Twitter and the impact of our podcast is, is somewhat far-reaching at this point. And one of the overarching goals is to promote awareness and attention to support informed consent whenever you're taking any pharmaceutical. We've had a few podcasts recently where we talked about some of the dubious and fraudulent marketing tactics of the pharmaceutical industry and how many clients who've been taking certain drugs are assuming that the, there is strong efficacy and safety for the drugs that they're taking without having much of a background information on how these drugs came to market and some of the adverse consequences of these drugs. So I do certainly want our audience to kind of go back and listen to the a couple of our previous podcasts uh, where we highlighted some of this issue. But one of the things that's been brought to my attention, and I've been, to be honest, I've been a bit hesitant to go in this direction on our podcast because I just needed more information. And luckily, yeah, I've, a couple people have reached out to me to talk more about a specific issue. And it's an adverse reaction to commonly prescribed antidepressants, SSRIs, um, SNRIs. What's an SNRI? Selective um, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Similar in terms of an SSRI in terms of what their intended use is for? Well, the targeting specific um, neurochemicals Mm -hmm. by... Uh, preventing the reuptake in the cell and then flooding the the nerve sim- synapse with that. And so these two drugs, I mean, those two classes of drugs are the most commonly prescribed mm-hmm. antidepressant. And we know that the conditions in which these drugs are prescribed extend way beyond just somebody in a depressive episode. And so there is a common side effect, unfortunately, um, I'm not even going to call it a side effect. I don't even think that's fair to call it a side effect because it's almost like a, under the assumption that these drugs are highly effective and then here's a side effect you just have to deal with. And you know, I'm not so certain that we have that data or that information. So instead, I'm going to call it an adverse effect or an adverse consequence to taking the drug. And it's around sexual dysfunction. We're going to get into the weeds on sexual dysfunction. It's, it's disabling. It's impairing. And it's potentially could be something that occurs even after you stop the use of the drug. So on today's podcast, I want to welcome two advocates 
who are supporting awareness in this research, this, this area that highly requires more research. First is Emily Gray. She is a medical activist using her ongoing personal experience of PSSD, and that is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. So we're going to use mm -hmm. PSSD today. Um, her goal is to raise awareness of the disorder among healthcare professionals and the greater public. She is one of the founders of the registered nonprofit Canadian Post-SSRI Sexual Dysfunction Society. She is networking with PSSD surf, uh, survivors and sufferers around the world and is working with researchers at Queen's University and the University of Ottawa to acquire more information about this understudied condition. Emily, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. McFillan. I'm glad to be here. Before we get to you, I also want to introduce Yazi Parani is a trauma therapist based in Vancouver. Uh, Yazi is a registered clinical counselor with the BC Association of Clinical Counselors and a registered social worker with the BC College of Social Workers. She works with people throughout the province of British Columbia, Canada. Sean, you've ever been to British Columbia? Multiple times. Beautiful area. I love Vancouver. It is probably my favorite destination. I was there um, doing multiple uh, advertising commercial shoots, and I just fell in love with the city. So in her range of sexual and reproductive health concerns amongst uh, areas of her specialty, she's worked many years in the areas of sexual and mental health and works from a trauma-informed, anti-oppressive, and harm reduction approach. In her clinical practice, she specializes in supporting people who suffer from post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. Her work with the PSSD community uniquely positions her to educate fellow healthcare professionals and the public on the real impacts of this disabling condition. I met with both Yazzie and Emily before this podcast just for a, a bit of a pre-discussion, and they're both extremely knowledgeable, very passionate. Yazzie, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So let's just start with Emily. I think the expected place to start, Emily, if you're willing, is just to share your story and talk about your, your journey and what you went through to get to this place in your career. Sure. So when I was a teenager, as many, many teenagers do, I suffered from various what we might call mental health problems, um, but could also just be called growing up. You know, I often suffered from low moods. Um, I also struggled with body image. I had an eating disorder, which caused me some health issues for a little over a year. Um, and at, when I was 17 years old, at the recommendation of some friends of the family, my parents took me to talk to a psychiatrist. And it was a very kind of comfortable, nonchalant encounter. I didn't have any negative experience with the psychiatrist, but she recommended that I try SSRIs and see if that improved my, my mental health. You know, I was just about to be heading off to college. She thought it would kind of help ease the transition. Um, and I, it was treated as something very, very normal and very, very safe. Uh, so I started on the SSRIs and I did feel a, re a perceived reduction in my symptoms. Um, the SSRI I was on was citalopram and I was on at 30 milligrams uh, a day, which is a very moderate normal dose for an SSRI. Let me ask you a question. So you, you initially 
experienced a reduction in what you identified as symptoms. What were the reduction of symptoms that you did experience initially? I, just, I felt calmer. I found it easier to concentrate. I felt less intense negative emotion. Okay. Um, so I would say her description of it smoothing the transition was accurate. Okay. Um, but I, I stayed on it for several years during my, my college years. And I kept kind of thinking, well, I should go off at some point. But, you know, I, I think it's making my life easier. And I hadn't really been warned about any negative effects. So I, I guess the accurate way to describe it is I developed a psychological dependency on them. Um, so let me ask you some but, questions because I think your, your story is, is really interesting and it's important because if our goal here is to raise awareness for healthcare professionals and those who are potentially um, prescribed these drugs, there's a, a number of things that didn't happen for you that we would hope would happen in the future. So the mm -hmm. first thing is that you were not informed of any potential adverse consequences to taking the drug. Is that correct? The only side effects that were mentioned was she said that I might feel some nausea when coming on or off the drug. Okay. There were there was absolutely no mention of sexual dysfunction, either long lasting or temporary. She did not bring that up in any capacity. Um, at one later meeting with her, because I've been experiencing some reduction in libido on the drug, I I asked her, "Is it normal to like have less sexual desire on this medication?" I brought that up to her as a teenage patient. Um, and she said, yes, that's normal, but it'll go away when you come off the medication. Okay. So the assumption so of the that. healthcare professional was that that was possible that it could happen, but it was kind of, you know, dismissed as not something that could be serious or, or lasting. So maybe while you're on the drug, you can experience that, but almost the yes. assumption would be once you begin to taper off the drug and stop the drug, your libido would return. Yes, and I do want to point out that 17 years old is right in the middle of your sexual development. It's not a trivial thing. It's an important part of your life between ages 17 and your early 20s. Like the fact that kids that age are being prescribed drugs that have sexual side effects, even, even if they were guaranteed to just be temporary, that's still a big deal. That still needs to be brought up in a clinical setting. That still needs to be talked about because it's going to impact their relationships. It's going to impact their development. Very good point. And it and and it did. I wasn't. I hadn't had a serious relationship at that point in my life, but I entered into one in college, and it absolutely did impact my relationship. Um, I just wasn't sexually bonding and experiencing sexuality in a normal way. Um, and I I knew something was wrong, so I decided that it was time for me to taper off. The medication. I accurately identified, okay, I think this is the SSRI. I'm going to try and come off this medication now. Um, so under the supervision of a doctor, I reduced 30 milligrams to 15 milligrams, did that for a couple months, and then I started, I tapered down to nothing over the course of two weeks from 15 milligrams. Um, but during all this tapering, I was not experiencing any return of libido. Um, and then at some, at just after finishing the taper fully, so just a few days after coming off the medication entirely, I woke up one morning and I immediately knew something has happened. Something is different. Something very bad has happened in my body. There was kind of this feeling of overall sluggishness and lack of vitality, but I immediately noticed sort of a sensation of coldness 
in my my private parts in my vulva. And so I like reached down and was like, what's going on? And I had lost all forms of erogenous sensation, that sexual sensation in my genitals. And they were less sensitive um, to the touch as well. And, you know, it was very frightening. It was a very extreme, sudden night and day change. Um, I realized as I went through that day and the next couple of days, I'm not feeling any hint of arousal. Um, I'm not feeling any hint of desire. I'm not feeling, it's like a switch has gone off. My entire sexuality is shut down and I'm not even feeling fully emotionally present. I can't really feel anything towards um, the, the guy I was dating at the time. You know, I, I felt nothing whatsoever towards him even emotionally. It's like I've been entirely de-eroticized. So I got quite um, frightened and anxious and I immediately made an appointment with my doctor and I went to my doctor and I was asking them about this. Um, and all they could really say to me was, well, give it some time. You know, you might just be going through withdrawal. Um, they also said it could be the return of your mental health problems. You know, it, it, because you were coming off the SSRI, this could be a depressive symptom. But I knew that it could not be a symptom of depression because depression doesn't make your clitoris feel like your knuckle. Depression doesn't make every bit of erogenous sensation in your entire body switch off like a light. I had experienced what was diagnosed as depression, and it did not feel anything like that. Um, and to summarize, I have there's been no change in that condition for the last three years. I have been off the medications entirely for three years. I am still completely de-eroticized. Um, and there, I've tried, tried lifestyle changes. Um, I've tried dietary changes. I've tried exercise. I've tried, you know, anything, any natural um, healing that you could expect. I've tried those avenues. I've even tried some other medications to try and correct it. And they're just, I experienced brief relief or, or, or moderate relief actually on an SNRI. It seemed to sort of switch it back partially, but then that faded and uh, it ceased to have any improvement. Um, and now I'm back to square one, being completely asexual. Uh, so about two years ago, a year into to having this, I realized I can't be silent about this. Something has happened to me in connection with the SSRI. I had discovered online communities where people were talking about um, exactly the same symptoms that I was going through. And I also discovered the work of da Professor David Healy. Now he is a professor at McMaster University in Ontario. Um, and he has been working for many years to try and bring light to post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. So exactly what I was experiencing. And he'd been you know, advocating hard and trying to get attention and research towards it. And a lot of it seemed to have fallen on deaf ears from the medical community. And I saw, okay, what's really needed here is patients themselves who have experienced these effects need to start coming forward and talking about it. There's a huge amount of shame and fear around this subject. Um, and someone's got to be the one to, to stand up and just be willing to admit what this happened to me. And it needs to stop happening to other people. And of course, I, I would love it if we could also find research and um, like, like found research and find treatment for it. Um, but even if 
my advocacy, the only result is that I stop more teenagers from having their sexuality removed. That would be enough for me. It's very brave, especially at a young age. Emily, how old are you now? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm currently 26. Um, I was on the medication from uh, 17, almost 18 to age 23. Un unfortunately, your story isn't unique. And it's really important for us maybe to try, try to get some understanding of uh, what the prevalence rate of, of this condition is. Yazzie, I want to bring you in here. Are, are you aware of um, kind of the prevalence rate of this kind of disorder or condition? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. So unfortunately, um, we don't have data. We have uh, Queen's University is uh, putting together some qualitative research, collecting patient experiences, collecting stories about the condition. So that's going to be a survey that's going to be open for a while. Um, but and then hopefully then we'll that'll generate um, some quantitative research. Um, but at this time, it's it's um, really um, a, a lot of anecdotal research and qualitative research in, um, that you see available. Um, and it's really, really, really challenging because so many people probably have PSSD and don't know. So just to kind of uh, just briefly go describe, I'm sorry, explain what PSSD is because I don't think we've we've done that exactly yet. Um, so even though it's um, estimated to be rare, we actually really don't know the percentage of people who, who, of, who will take antidepressants will develop PSSD. And so it can be, it, it's a, a, a variety of symptoms that can begin either during or soon after stopping an antidepressant. Um, so uh, up to six months after, uh, and may persist for months, years or indefinitely after stopping the medication. And so there's currently no reliable treatment and the symptoms include, uh, so reduced genital sensation or what we call genital anesthesia. For a lot of people explain it as they went to the dentist and the lidocaine got put in the wrong place mm. and never went away. Um, uh, also um, erectile dysfunction or decreased vaginal lubrication, delayed or inability to orgasm, so anorgasmia, uh, pleasureless, weak, or muted orgasms, decreased or absent libido, reduced response to sexual stimuli, decreased or lack of nocturnal erections, premature or delayed ejaculation, reduced sensitivity or sensitivity in other erogenous zones, um, and loss of penile and clitoral size. Um, and that's the sexual side, and what's, which is coming, you know, uh, more, I mean, that's been recognized the, by um, uh, regulatory, it's becoming rec recognized by regulatory bodies and in the medical community. What's not being recognized is the other symptoms that often accompany PSSD. So um, that, that's those, there's sexual symptoms, so it's kind of what PSSD is called, but then there's emotional and cognitive issues. And they're uh, really, actually, I mean, all of it's very disabling, but the cognitive and emotional issues, uh, I find my patients say are more disabling than sexual issues. So those are include reduced intensity of emotions. Um, so anhedonia, um, particularly romantic anhedonia. So ability to feel romance, but a lot of people just feel generalized anhedonia. So inability to feel any form of pleasure in life, um, which is, to not be able to feel love and connection and bonding and empathy people by clients say it just it really makes them non-human um they they really can't participate 
um, in in relationships of any kind in a meaningful way. Um, a compromised memory, poor sleep quality, um, loss of creativity. A lot of people say, you know, they were once musicians or artists or painters. They just, that architecture of their brain, creative architecture of their brain has been just disrupted. And um, they just, that, that there seems to be some kind of connection with one's sexual, sexuality and creativity, we seem to find. And um, the capacity to dream at nighttime. Um, a lot of people, they're just, they're, they're, they, they no longer have dreams or imagination. They can't visualize anything in their heads anymore. They can't, don't have their mind's eye. Um, and uh, yeah, brain fog, cognitive slowing. So those symptoms are um, what we are really um, wanting to bring attention to as well, uh, because a lot of my, my clients will say um, it, it should just be called post-SSRI syndrome um, because the sexual uh, umbrella is just one, but my experience over here is not being recognized by that label. So that's um, that's a little description of, of exactly what PSSD is. And um, we don't know the prevalence at this time. Yeah, what's interesting here is it's the challenge because of the diversity of human genetic makeup. We're, we're so different. Mm -hmm. So yeah. one person might take a drug and experience one thing while another person might take the same drug and not experience either that benefit or any of the negative consequences with it. And I've yeah. deep dived into antidepressants for the past couple of years. I mean, I've become so obsessive about it that I want to find out those who actually promote the drug. So there are people out there who will say, hey, it's really helped me. And even Emily here recognizes there was some effect and I try to make sense of that because it really seems like it's actually a small percentage of people. And when we compare the drug to placebo, there's real controversy whether it outperforms a placebo at any, uh, in, in any meaningful way. But what it is, it is a psychoactive substance that is going to alter your cognitive and physiological states. And so for somebody who might be experiencing intense emotional pain or reactivity, it's certainly possible that some people might experience an initial positive response to the dampening of that emotional experience, whether we call it emotional numbing or uh, an emotional blunting effect. That could be, for a percentage of people, it could be interpreted as something that is quite relieving. So there may be some benefit. The question is always, at what cost? So if there is a emotional blunting or physiological shifts or changes in your reaction to emotional stimuli, it would make sense that there is blunting in other ways, creativity, um, sexuality, libido. Is that, is that how the two of you kind of think of it as, as I think about it? Yeah, I, I, 100%. And one thing that I forgot to mention is a lot of people just feel generally less tactile sensation all over their body. Like their body's numb. They don't feel connected. There's depersonalization and derealization people people experience and just, just a general lack of sensation. Like they don't feel butterflies in their gut anymore. They even, they'll touch their skin and they don't have, like it's just, it's just, it's just like somebody put a numbing gel all over their body and people are so confused. So there's something um, deeply impacted by in some people's nervous system um, 
and the emotions, you know, what we're kind of coming to learn about the connection of, of our emotions and our nervous system and how, um, of course, then, yeah, the, if the drug is kind of numbing uh, some of what's going on for people um, emotionally, then there's physiological numbing as well. Those things are connected. Here's, here's um, I, I always made the assumption that a side effect while you're on a drug is while you're on the drug. And even if you were to read through the list of side effects, as you're taking a drug, you may think, oh, am I feeling any of these side effects? I never really think about after I am you know, getting off the drug that there could be side effects that continue or show themselves when I'm no longer taking the drug. So that makes me think that this is very underreported. Uh, and most people don't even think about the drug as causing this particular um, side effect. Are you experiencing Yeah, so many people would have no idea that it's the medication. Um, and um, it, we just, the, the effects to people, you know, my, my clients say like damage to my brain and nervous system is so much further than a side effect. And those are the people who can really link the drug to, um, to their symptoms, but so many people will have such a range of symptoms. It'll be really some, for some people it's really mild and some people it's absolutely like an on off switch, like Emily was describing mm -hmm. and some people it's in between. And so, so many people don't know to attribute their symptoms to the drug. So, um, it's, it's really, 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 uh, under probably under recognized, under reported. Um, and it's like, uh, Roger, you're saying um, it's it really it, it's it, it's a trade off. It's a trade off because um, they people you know will say PSSD does not begin to compare to the distress of the depression or anxiety that they're originally seeking treatment for. It just goes so much deeper. Like PSSD rots your spirit and breaks people and people choosing suicide over it. And that's so much more distressing than the, you know, people are ending up in the doctor's office for, a, you know, losing a job or, or, you know, all, a breakup or all these things that are painful. They're, it's life, but we're medicalizing these life experiences and, and applying the biomedical model in, in a big way to mental health and sort of diseaseifying any, heartbreak any 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 distress and 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 um not i think it's just so important to kind of normalize the ups and downs of life and um we're we're kind of just in a in a system where people are just getting put on meds so easily uh, without I, without meaningful conversations about the risks involved such as this somebody tweeted me recently who stated my depression was a vacation at a five-star resort compared to PSSD and the symptoms I have to exhibit. And so I, I think you made an excellent point, Yazzie, about the medicalization of, of living. And we can get into philosophy of this, but obviously the emotions, even when they're negative and they're intense, um, are certainly sending us a message. They're serving us in some way. Whether there For is sure. some um, problem we need to face or loss we need to grieve, or something that we have to do to change our lives, there's also potentially something else that's going on with us medically that needs to be addressed. So common psychiatric symptoms can also be related to a number 
of other potential causes. Emily was mentioning struggling with an eating disorder, which is an area of expertise for, my, for me personally, where I work with clients and they exhibit symptoms that are psychiatric in nature, depressed mood, anxiety, and so forth. And there's a lot of nutrient deficiencies. Their, their body is sick, it's ill, and, and their brain is deprived of necessary fats and proteins for development and so forth. So they exhibit depressed mood and so forth. But what the underlying problem is is starvation, and it presents itself as a psychiatric condition. So the idea to try to treat some of these conditions that have other causes and their, their purpose at one person's life at a, at a specific time is to try to numb or to alter or change that physiological state. To assume that that has some sort of benefit, I think, is you know, un unfortunately a direction where we've gone in, in society that has worsened the way that we deal with the struggles of, of living versus some advancement medically. I want to bring Emily back in here because she may have some more information on this. I know anecdotally, it is quite common for my clients to report some changes in their sexual functioning, decrease in libido, um, changes in relationship. And I know we don't have any like clear data that might suggest that we know the percentage of people that are going to experience this adverse effect. But in, in your work, Emily, are you getting an understanding of, of maybe how common something like this is? I think what we're dealing with is at any rate, it's a lot more common than one would think based on the amount of literature there is. So here's an example. Um, a friend of mine uh, I, I made through advocacy who also suffers from PSSD, she made a Tinder profile in her um, and set it to her city. And in it, she didn't show her face, but she described PSSD um, and said, I'm, I'm just looking to connect with other people out there who might have it. Um, and she set the... Um, the area for um, availability to 10 kilometers in either direction. And within a few days, she was getting messages from people who lived within her vicinity that had PSSD that had come across her profile. So this is not a rare thing. There's someone in your town, there's someone on your block who has PSSD. It's probably far, far more common than is ever discussed, just like many other forms of sexual trauma. Um, and I just want to add on to something um, that Yazi was speaking of earlier about accompanying symptoms. So when I was experiencing what was diagnosed as depression in high school, I could still finish high school. When I was on the medication, I was doing fine in university. When I developed PSSD, if you're coming off the medication, I experienced such emotional trauma, um, and also accompanying physical fatigue and cognitive impacts like brain fog and inability to think straight or carry a workload that I had to drop out of university. So that is both a, that, that also makes it more difficult for people to address the, the problem of PSSD and it makes it more difficult for them to communicate to the people around them because it comes with these accompanying symptoms of deep, deep fatigue and um, lack of vitality. So I think people who acquire PSSD often are just kind of slowly fading into the background. If, um, if someone does suspect they may have PSSD, how do they go about trying to confirm? Because maybe people are on the fence and not understanding because awareness is so low. 
are, what resources exist if someone even go to a doctor? Could a doctor properly confirm or deny whether or not it's happening? There is, there has been recently published an official diagnostic criteria, and it was developed by a wide range of medical professionals from 39 different universities, um, and I can uh, link that to you afterwards. Um, the problem is that, that was developed in Europe, so this is starting to gain more awareness and uh, recognition across the European Union, um, but especially in North America, we're really behind on awareness. So chances are, when you go to a doctor, this is changing now, but a lot of the time they haven't even heard of PSSD. So they may just be genuinely in the dark for what you're experiencing as much as the patient is. Um, there's a tendency to suggest that it's the mental health issue returning. Um, there's also just often sort of a, a bold-faced just denial um, that it's possible that these effects can be the result of a medication. And so patients may leave the doctor's office just saying, well, I, I guess it can't be the medication then. It must be something else. And they may spend years trying other things, trying to fix other things, um, and not being able to confirm that it is PSSD. Um, generally, we would say if you have significant sexual dysfunction that was not present before taking the medication, um, and that lasts three to six months after totally tapering off the medication, we would consider it to be PSSD. Uh, we're not able yet to confirm biomarkers. There's no particular test that can be done on someone that can confirm that it's PSSD. Um, a big clue is if there is tactile numbing in the genital area, because um, it, it's hard, you know, if it's lowered libido, then it could maybe be other things. Tactile numbing after taking an SSRI is quite distinct. That's quite a distinct, discrete symptom. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some medical professionals who are aware of PSSD and are willing to diagnose it, and I can make uh, I can link you a list of them afterwards as well. Great. I find um, it's really common for people when they do if they do gain the courage to speak to their doctor, which is often a journey that I work with in my practice. Folks are feel so much um, mistrust um, if, if they've gotten PSSD. It's because a healthcare professional didn't have the equipment to warn them about the risks. So there's a lot of mistrust already coming in um, when going into a doctor's office after that experience. Oftentimes people have spoken to their families or communities and they, they're they shamed or minimized. So the strength and courage to even go into a doctor's office and say, hey, I think I have PSSD, uh, is a, it's immense. Um, and it's really common for people to experience minimization and dismissal of their PSSD PSSD symptoms is a valid healthcare concern, which compounds suffering. Often the greatest contributor I find to thoughts of suicide um, is, well, not actually the injury itself, oftentimes it is, but the experience of having their concerns dismissed. The denial of PSSD is a real and serious healthcare issue, creates the conditions in which people too often blame themselves. And self-blame can further disrupt relationships self-worth and identity and sending people into a spiral of shame and self-loathing and reach it's reached completely re-traumatizing for people um to have to not be to not be validated and believed and many people with this sexual trauma from PSSD draw parallels to sexual assault made 
to draw parallels to sexual assault to make sense of their experiences as they feel strongly that a violence has been done to them. And a sexual violence framework is useful for these sufferers to understand their experience, particularly because of the power and authority differentials involved, the dynamics around consent, and the shame experienced when speaking out. Sufferers of PSSD, just as survivors of sexual, other sexual violences, um, need to be reminded that their trauma is not their fault and that they have the right to feel rage, devastation, grief, confusion, and any other emotion related to their experience. Yeah, Yazzie, you, you, were, you jumped in there because I was going to go down that lens as far as asking you some questions, because I know you do work from a trauma-informed perspective, and this clearly, to me, represents medical trauma. Are you, are, do your clients that you're working with also exhibit symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress in a way that one would if they experienced a, another traumatic event? Absolutely. Absolutely. And people are triggered. <laughs> the thing that's so hard about this is uh, the triggers are everywhere. I mean, a love song at the mall. I mean, sex and relationships and love, it's everywhere. I mean, you go to a friend's house and people are talking about who they're dating and, you know, who's hot and who's, you know, like, it's just, it's, it's inescapable. And um, we don't realize how much our, how much our culture really revolves around romance and sex until you, uh, until you get PSSD and you're triggered constantly because there's reminders of what's, what's happened to you and what's been stolen from you. And um, so um, it's, it's a really, really hard thing for people. It's uh, definitely uh, a lot. I mean, most people say, um, that the PSSD has given them PTSD. Yeah. I work with sexual trauma survivors and, you know, as you're probably well aware, um, that component of self-blame is really problematic as Huge. it does get in the way of being able to take steps forward. Um, and it's really, even when we look into our literature, it's really a major factor in the development of PTSD symptoms. I have to imagine when it comes to turning to SSRIs and then developing this condition, that self-blame is, is got to be one of the challenges that you face in being able to support people clinically. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's massive because it's really, really challenging for people to find people in their network to validate their experience. Um, people do not get that... Um, it's hard to find people to really um, recognize the the depth of the violence that has happened, and to um, to remind people that it's not their fault, and that and that um, they have nothing to be ashamed about, and that that you know they shouldn't be blaming themselves because it's so um, it's so I cannot think of a more stigmatized healthcare condition. First, you have to tell your community, you know, if you're whoever you're leaning to for support, first you have to say that you are on psychiatric medications, which carries stigma. And then you have to say that you um, have been chemically castrated, essentially. Um, so the intersection of those uh, realities, it makes it extremely difficult for people to speak out and get the support they need from their families, from their communities. And because people haven't heard of PSSD, it's just, it's so often minimized, uh, as a, as, as an issue. Um, it's really rare for people I find to find somebody in their life to just say, wow, that, you know, I'm, I don't know a lot about that. Let me learn more about your experience. 
a lot of people really don't want to acknowledge that this is real because it's so confronting to uh, the status quo of how we uh, assess and treat people with mental health issues. And there's a lot of, uh, it's, there's a lot of um, uh, a nuance that needs to be part of the discussion when we're bringing light to the risks of SSRIs. Um, a lot of people who are on the medication do, um, do feel attacked when the drugs are being critiqued. And so people who are critiquing the medications um, or trying to have more robust conversations about efficacy and safety can be kind of just put into a camp of conspiracy, like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist kind of thing. And yeah. Um, yeah. Emily, you're gonna say something? Oh, yeah, I was gonna just completely concur that people who are currently on the medication, um, they have a tendency to get defensive when we're just talking about the uh, long-term effects that we've experienced. I think they experience um, it as some kind of attack on their choices. Um, and I'm not looking to take choice away from people. I'm actually trying to enable informed choice. Um, and, and Yazi too, like we're not trying to make people feel ashamed for taking medication. We just want people to go into that knowing what they are taking, knowing more about what they're putting in their body and what the potential long-term consequences of it are. They have a right to know that. Good point. Yeah. Um, I agree. Sorry, oh, sorry, go ahead, Yazzie. As we say, a lot of people feel pressure to kind of tone down the impact of, of, of this on their lives because of due, due to the stigma against speaking frankly about sexuality and the taboo of criticizing mental health medication in any way. Um, so yeah, that just really, really, really complicates things. Mm-hmm. Agree. And I think that all ties into the underreporting of this, uh, this effect. Yeah. yeah. It's really important because this isn't a, about pill shaming. This is about providing informed consent, you know, having people be able to consent to the medical treatments that they choose by getting all the available information. I feel like sometimes we're behind the iron curtain here in the Western world when it comes to. <laughs> Uh, adequate information. And when you talk about 80% of these drugs being prescribed in primary care settings, they are getting infiltrated with pharma data. And the continuing medical education credits are often sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. So what has to happen is it has to be these grassroots efforts with organizations like um, PSSD Canada and others who are trying to bring awareness and attention through the stories and all the information and try to fund themselves some some way of gathering the data because it's just not going to be economically motivated on on the from the pharmaceutical injury industry or the the medical authority i feel like we are in a very challenging place because these drugs are so widely prescribed that it's very difficult for a medical professional to really face and accept this fully because they're so complicit in this because mm-hmm. they are prescribing them without a full understanding of what the effects are, which leads to my next question, because Emily touched on this earlier. My concern is they're so frequently prescribed off-label, and they're experimental for young, developing children and teenagers. Emily mentioned how, how valuable and important 
the development, this period in development is for continued uh, sexuality, understanding your sexuality, your experience. Obviously, it's a, it's a time in, in development where we're just kind of biologically kind of framed to reproduce. So there's intense emotions and hormonal reactions and responses that occur during this developmental period. And what I'm seeing and in contact with people around the world, we see this developing movement around identifying as asexual. And there are so many young people that are being prescribed SSRIs, in particular more so adolescent females, that I'm really concerned that the drugs themselves could be in some way um, impeding normal sexual development and understanding um, you know, who you are attracted to or what you experience or experiencing normal sexual functioning that would be exhibited that age range. Do we have any information or I just, even just your thoughts? Is this rise in identifying as asexual, could it be potentially linked to the rise in drugs that we're giving these young developing teenagers? I think that's a very, very important question. Obviously, I don't have any definitive answer on that because um, it hasn't been studied. It hasn't been properly studied why we're seeing this asexual movement. Um, I think it's, you know, it's always a possibility that some people are that way naturally. But when you have drugs being commonly prescribed to millions of people in Canada alone um, that we know can interfere with sexual development, um, this is obviously going to be having some kind of systemic impact. And I think that there is just such a taboo over examining that impact that it could be causing lots of things, many effects that we can't confirm. So personally, it would not surprise me if a lot of the people who identify as asexual, or, or at least some of them, um, had interrupted sexual development as a result of psychiatric medication. I do personally know, I mean, I mean, at this point, I've talked to hundreds of people with PSSD. I've read the posts of many more. Um, and I do, I have personally spoken to people who were prescribed SSRIs at say age 11 or age 12, and they just never experienced a normal, what they would describe as normal sexual development from that point onwards. So I, I do know I have spoken directly to people who are what society would deem asexual, who personally attribute their asexuality to psychiatric medication, particularly SSRIs. So it definitely is something that's happening. What what percentage of those people, what percentage of people who identify as asexual are, are affected by SSRIs, or what percentage um, it has nothing to do with that? We don't have that information. It's really difficult because um, with people who have PSSD onset, the onset of PSSD, you know, as adults, they have ba a baseline to compare to. But if you were robbed of your sexuality before you had the capacity to develop your sexuality, and um, as I, as you know, can happen, I have clients who you know they were on these medications. Obviously, the symptom really ranges, but I mean, I have some clients who they do have their romantic attraction and arousal, but their genitals are numb and they have anorgasmia and they have, there's, they've been diagnosed with PSSC. There's no other reason why they would have those symptoms. And um, so um, there are, it, there are very clearly impacts developmentally to uh, somebody's body sexually um, by these medications. And so 
any range of those symptoms can impact somebody's sexual response system and identity development um, that co correlates with um, what has or hasn't been able to develop sexually. So, I mean, it, it only makes sense. We, we, we don't know, obviously we don't have numbers, we don't have data, we desperately need more data of all kinds about, about PSSD. But um, yeah, from what I see in my clinical practice, it, it for sure would, would make sense that that is a part of um, the movement that we're seeing. And while there has been not nearly enough study on this, and there's much, much more required, um, there has been one very interesting paper that was published in 2020 in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. It is by Tierney K. Lorenz, PhD, and it's titled Antidepressant Use During Development May Impair Women's Sexual Desire in Adulthood. Um, and this is one of the this is, this is, I think, should be a jumping off point for more studies. Um, mm -hmm. it's the I'll read you the introduction here. Is that okay? Yes, please. It says, although antidepressants are well known to cause sexual side effects in adults, the long-term effects of antidepressant use during development on adult, sexual dis on adult sexual function is unknown. The aim of this study is to explore differences in sexual desire and sexual behavior between adults who did versus did not use antidepressants during childhood. The methods, an online survey of 610 young adults who were 66% women, assessed childhood and current mental health and use of antidepressants and other psychiatric medications before the age of 16 and currently, partnered and solitary sexual desire and frequency of masturbation and partnered sexual activity. Antidepressants were coded into either selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or other non-SSRI antidepressants. And here are the results. For women, childhood SSRI use was associated with significantly lower sexual desire, desire for an attractive other, and frequency of masturbation. This was true even when controlling for childhood mental health concerns, current mental health, and current antidepressant use. And I will happily link you that study because I think it's a, a really intriguing place um, to start and we should be um, replicating that on a much, much wider level. And rodent studies um, show that um, the sexual development, uh, sorry, sexual, basically mirror all of that um, in uh, what you shared, Emily. Um, and there's a lot of rodents, a lot more rodent studies. So, I mean, we just, yeah, we need more research. I'll include a link to that study in the show summary. Yeah, Zee and Emily, I, I am interested in coping. Um, the clinical work that's done, uh, how you approach your life and the clients who are, are suffering from this, how they you know, come to some acceptance and how they cope and create a life of value, purpose, one that's worth living. I'm interested to know in uh, intimate relationships and with their partners, how they're able to kind of adapt. So any information that you can you know, provide about what we know clinically to be able to support people who are going through this. Yeah, so in my work of understanding more about the lived experience with people with PSSD, I've just come to learn how immense the ripple effects are of this condition on, on, can be on people's lives, people's relationships, self-esteem, quality of life, motivation, identity, and many other aspects. The loss of sexual identity and expression can have devastating consequences on mental health, of course, and really shatter one's identity and self-worth. Um, and be a, a really big grieving process. So um, a lot of uh, the work is 
moving through grief and uh, to a place of, of acceptance. Um, P PSSD, um, it's only when somebody's sexuality is removed when people realize how intrinsic it is to their self-expression and sense of empowerment. And um, so people feel this experience is a profoundly disempowering injury and um, really can shape, have such an impact on somebody's identity, especially, um, you know, in terms of figuring out somebody's sexual orientation or membership in the queer community. Um, it, it really, really um, is so, so life altering. And, and again, depending on the symptom profile, for some people, it's absolutely catastrophic. And some people are impacted less profoundly depending on what symptoms they get. Um, and so um, it really, I find it's, it's, it's a spectrum. And um, for some people, on one end, they're you know, entirely sexually and emotionally non-functional. And some people, it's just kind of mild, mild to moderate libido reduction that doesn't strongly impact their life in a big way. Um, so it's really up to, you know, I find um, following the following the lead on on the on the, the patient experience and really using their language and their frame of reference to understand how it's impacted them is so important. Um, in terms of coping, I mean, it just, it so depends on the symptom profile. Um, you know, for most people, it really is grief. It's, it's a shock process and developing the capacity to build community with other people who have PSSD is really important because it's just so hard for people. It's so alienating, such an alienating experience. People can't seem to get the support or understanding that they need from people who haven't had this condition. So um, there's uh, there's something that is really quite profound about being able to connect and talk to other people who've had this happen to them as well. Um, and um, really, I find um, people, it's so healing for people to be believed by their healthcare providers, to believe, be believed by people in positions in authority who are supposed to be safeguarding their well-being. How healing it is for people to actually just have somebody say, recognize this and say, this is real and here's a diagnosis. And um, this is something wrong that, you know, happened to you and it's not your fault. Like that in itself is immense and it's really hard for people to come by. It's a lot easier to have your doctor believe you if you were a victim of other kinds of sexual violence. Um, this this type of sexual violence, it's, it's, it's really hard to be believed and to be validated and believed is um, a cornerstone of the healing process. So um, it's, it's so important that we build more awareness about this so people can at least have their pain recognized and validated as something real. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I'd say that I mean, having your sexuality chemically removed and the attendant symptoms of cognitive dysfunction, it isn't really something you're going to get over. It's going to be something that hurts you for the rest of your life. Um, and it's kind of going to come in waves like any grieving process. And I think Yazi describing it as a grieving process was very, very accurate. You know, I went through all of the stages of grief coming to terms with the fact that 
this was going to be most likely was going to be something I would have to live with for the rest of my life. Um, the things I found that were conducive to learning how to cope were removing self-blame from the equation, um, reaching out to other people who had PSSD, you know, like she described, there is an incredible feeling of isolation, um, but being able to build a community of people around me who have gone through the same thing and can kind of commiserate about it, that did um, make me feel more supported and less alone. Um, and also I did eventually start getting through with people in my life and some of the people in the medical community here in BC. Um, you know, Yazi and I have done presentations to the BC Union of Social Workers. Um, a colleague of ours did a presentation to um, the BC uh, Psychiatric College. So the feeling of actually making some progress has enabled me to create some meaning out of it and gain a sense of calm and it gives me some of my control back. You know, it's not just something that is being done to me. It is something that I do have, I do have a measure of control within this situation. Um, and in my personal life, it has simply had to be learning how not to think about it all the time, just truly having to develop the capacity to compartmentalize. And of the people I have known who have experienced um, I'm not going to say healing, but uh, an increase in their ability to cope. Uh, compartmentalization is often a big part of it, just being able to set it aside. Okay, okay, I will focus on other aspects of my life because this aspect is just destroyed. Um, but of course, the ripple effects throughout your life are incredible. You know, you, you don't really have access to the normal social environment that young people inhabit. Um, most, the primary person in most people's life is their partner. You know, you may move to different cities, you may or may not be close to your family. Most people, the number one person in their life is their spouse. Um, and then after that, their children. But if you don't have the ability really to have a spouse, to have a relationship, how are you going to build a family? Um, so the people who manage to deal with PSSD in a less uh, desperate way are the people who are able to build relationships outside of sort of that, um, who are able to build platonic relationships that don't rely on a romantic connection. But for some people, that's very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I you read everything you're saying, Emily, is so important. I mean, yeah, of course, to have your ability to experience an intimate relationship and feel at home in your own body and to have functioning emotions completely removed by a medication that was meant to alleviate your emotional distress is a, such a catastrophic thing to happen to someone. Um, and so um, for most people, it's not just a traumatic event, but a trauma that is ongoing in nature and remains unresolved. And um, it's sort of hard to heal from a trauma. When can, it's kind of... Um, continuing to happen to other people around you as well and just to know that there every day there's somebody who's at risk of having this happen um makes it really hard to feel like you can have your own trauma resolved because of um this nobody's the, we we don't have informed consent practices um, that are that are stopping this harm um so many people yeah really need ongoing emotional and psychological support um i found um sharing your story and raising awareness can reduce that helplessness and hopelessness and finding community. Um, so yeah, like 
finding ways to not to to reduce sense of alien sense the sense of alienation and despair like like Emily was mentioning um, yeah well said thank you many clinicians out there and medical professionals have been kind of conditioned and taught through guidelines that are supposed to be evidence based and research supported that when someone is suffering emotionally a frontline treatment would be um, an SSRI it's almost so widely accepted now that it's not even thought about as potentially a risky medical intervention. What advice can you give to both medical professionals and those who are uh, in doing conducting clinical work and recommending their patients go seek out a consult for uh, for medication evaluation? What advice would you give them? Yazi, do you want to go first? Uh, I think. I think um, there's so many ways to look at human distress and mental illness and suffering. And I think one of the, the disease model, the biomedical model that we have predominantly for mental illness right now in the medical community um, is uh, one, if, if you have a mental illness in our culture or to have any periods of darkness or suffering, it's wrong. And it means you're off track and it means you need to be fixed. And I think there's a lot we can learn from spiritual paradigms that see someone who's truly trying to be in their, awake in their life will go through suffering because life is sad and difficult and hard. And as you get closer to knowing your heart, you're going to find pain there. And it doesn't mean you're messing up. It means you're really committed to learning and being awake and growing. Sometimes um, we, we go through pain and it brings us it brings us to a place that we wouldn't have gotten to otherwise and there is value there is value in being with our suffering and being with our pain and i think that value needs to be acknowledged and recognized of course um you know we we also need to be looking at bigger social contexts around what it is that is causing distress do we need um political interventions to our what's happening with the economy like all these kinds of environmental facts like, like our um suicide rates going up because teenagers brains are they're on their phones too much and their teen their brains are changing no it's it's we're living in a terrifying world the the uh, scientists are saying we're in ecological armageddon i mean that's terrifying for young people and and the prospects for finding stability and security and such a such a tumultuous changing uh, ecosystem uh, that we're finding ourselves in in the world these days. No, those things aren't need to be recognized, and we need we need social change. Um, I think, and to put all of the blame on somebody's brain or or you know just okay, give this there's a disease process, and you need a medication. That's one lens, but there's all these other lenses that we need to be looking at in terms of what makes somebody have a good mental have good mental health. Do they have access to um, do they have access to the kinds of, uh, what kind of quality of life are they living based on their socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that somebody experiences what would be considered normal and expected emotions given the events of their life that they're facing with, the idea of, of identifying it as an illness is extremely harmful. And it's a, it's a worldview that creates uh, tremendous amounts of dependency, vulnerability, and, and it's a harmful idea. And we have to be open about that. We have to be very, very clear 
that our emotional experiences and related to stressful and adverse conditions are normal and expected and there's a purpose for them. And so to quickly label that as some disease state is a harmful idea that could lead to a harmful medical intervention. Um, Emily, you were, you know, somebody who was at 17 was, was placed in that position. I'm sure if you would, you would look back it, you'd, you'd prefer to be able to deal with what you were feeling in, in different ways, but you were provided what, what amounted to, to believe somewhat of a kind of a, a quick fix to kind of help you in, in dealing with what you were dealing with. What advice would you give to that medical professional who you initially consulted with? Uh, simply that when you don't know the long-term effects of a medication, you know it can interfere with sexual development and um, you know that it is common for teenagers to go through not just temporary periods, but sometimes even years of emotional turbulence as they're developing. Is it really the less dangerous option to prescribe that medication? I recognize that all medical professionals have to make tough calls sometimes. They have to sometimes choose the less dangerous or perceived less harmful approach. Um, but why was that the, the less dangerous approach to put a certain drug, a certain chemical who, that they, they don't know the long-term effects of into a teenage body at a very critical developmental period? I just don't understand. So I think I would just tell her to maybe, I think that much better ways of coping for me at the time would have been more psychologically focused or frankly, even just letting me grow up, just leaving well enough alone. It probably would have worked itself out in time. Yeah, there's that, that, con that concept of um, watchful waiting, which we don't use mm -hmm. enough. It's just being able to not intervene and let the natural progression of a what we call episodes to be able to play itself out in somewhat of a, a different kind of approach the watchful part, meaning we take it seriously, and maybe that's the need for some emotional support or family or community to be able to assist that person who is struggling. Maybe even a, you know, a less restrictive intervention like a like a therapy might be, you know, necessary or recommended. And but the idea that everything has to be quickly intervened with a, with a pill obviously has great consequences. Yeah, there's a variety of treatment options uh, that, that are known to be effective for people with anxiety and depression and other, men other mental health issues that have significantly less risk of harm associated. For example, therapy, meditation, exercise. Um, do Does your doctor teach you about these things? Typically, no. Um, when you go to the hospital for an episode, do they teach you grounding and breathing and all these kinds of tools? Do you learn them in school? Uh, most people don't. I mean, maybe that's changing now, hopefully, but I sure didn't. Um, and, you know, there's um, the research just on exercise um, is, is quite profound. And um, I think um, the, we just going, going, physicians don't know what's at stake, right? You know, who, who aren't aware of this. Patients are going in, they don't know what's at stake. And the true risks of these drugs and so until we we just need wider awareness we need more of these conversations happening because it's just so important for people to be able to access all the information and then weigh the true risks and benefits of all options so they can decide what themselves what risks they're willing to take and i think it also engages questions around okay is therapy accessible for people 
pills are accessible, medications accessible, um, is living uh, in a community where you have support and access to clean water and nutritious food and nature. Are those things accessible for everybody? Are um, people, you know, they're working three jobs, like they don't, you know, they, they don't have, they can't, they can't afford private therapy and the wait lists for therapy in the public health system are so, so long. So those are all things that we need to be also addressing as well. When we're looking at informed consent. Is somebody exercising informed consent when all of those other options aren't actually financially accessible for them? And the pills are really the only thing that's being told to, to but offered by their doctors. It's not true informed consent. Good point. You guys are amazing. Uh, I couldn't imagine two better voices for this serious, complex, and challenging issue. Where can people find you, or how can we bring attention to some of the work that you're doing um, before we close today? Uh, we have a website um, the, uh, for the Canadian PSSD Society. It's www.pssdcanada.ca. I'd also like to draw some attention to a new PSSD-focused organization that recently started up uh, based in Australia called the PSSD Network, um, and it can be found at pssdnetwork.org. Um, they've hit the ground running and have already done a photo campaign to try and raise awareness about PSSD. Um, we've also seen a lot of um, organizations starting up around the world in the past few years. Um, there's a very active one in Germany called PSSD Hilfe, Hilfe spelled H-I-L-F-E. Um, and you can access their site and you can also, they have a English translation button on the site if you want to keep track of their activities. The work of Professor David Healy is a great place to get an overview of PSSD. He has a large um, body of the available literature um, linked on his website. Um, Risk.org. Yeah, yeah. 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 And also, if you visit um, the PSSD Canada website, we have a page under resources of um, many different other organizations. And we also have a compilation of academic sources that you can access. Great. Thank you. I want to thank you both for having a radically genuine conversation with us. Obviously, there is some momentum that is moving in the right direction to greater inform mm -hmm. the public and medical uh, and mental health professionals about this really important issue. Thank you so much for coming on. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.